You are listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation, a national nonprofit founded on the belief that every pregnancy deserves a happy ending. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider donating at StarLegacyFoundation.org. My guest for this episode is Valentina Massa. She's a professor of applied biology at the University of Milan in Italy. She also experienced the loss of a girl in 2015. She recently co-authored a trailblazing paper called How Many Roads Lead to Stillbirth Rate Reduction. It was published in 2019 in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. Tina, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. My first question for you is um, your overall interest in this topic of reducing preventable stillbirth. It's, it's not the first topic that comes to people's minds when they're um, often coming up with a research paper. What was the inspiration for doing a paper on this topic? Well, <clears throat> thank you for the question because um, the Prevention of stillbirth has been a focus for me and Laura, Dr. Avagliano, for many years because uh, we believe that the work towards trying helping clinicians in preventing stillbirths is really important, but not as much talked about as it should. So the idea is to try to prevent and study more how to prevent stillbirth, but also to um, raise the awareness on the, on the subject, because we believe it's very important. The paper is a 30-year analysis of risk factors in a Northern Italy University care center. How did you go about gathering the information for this paper? Well, um, Laura is uh, a clinician that works in an hospital, one of the major hospitals of Milano. <clears throat> that we, who's, which is one of the biggest cities in, in the northern Italy. So through the hospital, we were able to uh, recover all the information on patients. The paper focused on recognition of risk factors. Can you talk a little bit about why the awareness of risk factors can be so helpful in reducing stillbirth? Yeah. <clears throat> yes, we think, um, well, this, the paper and the study shows that despite the fact that the risk factors grew in the last years because of lifestyles, for example, smoking uh, has increased or uh, gain weight, so or obese, uh, obesity has increased, but also the maternal age of the first pregnancy has increased a lot. And these are all risk factors. But despite all these risk factors have increased in the last years, Luckily, not all the stillbirth rate has increased as much. So what we think is happening is, is that through awareness of uh, risk factors, so the recognition that some of these uh, features are could lead to stillbirth, have helped the management possibly, the, cl the clinician's management of the risk factors, but also for women. I, might, I, I think sometimes women that are told that smoking is a risk factor might be even more willing to stop smoking before having a, a pregnancy. Uh, 
So it's a it's a it's very important the understanding the risk factors, but also explaining them to clinicians and all the caregivers, but also to families, to the women, and also, I think, also the fathers, and understanding what are the real risk factors and how you can mitigate them. So you mentioned obesity, smoking, and advanced maternal age. Are, are there any other risk factors that you identified as significant for stillbirth? Yes, also uh, we found an association with I IVF, so um, uh, we found an association, an increased risk factor when the pregnancy was uh, assisted, so uh, with reproduct different type of reproduct uh, reproductive uh, techniques. And also type 2 diabetes, but also some... Uh, congenital defects of the of the baby, so some some ish, uh, some problems of the baby, such, such as fetal anemia, uh, can be associated with an increased risk of uh, stillbirth. Your work compared the stillbirth rates in uh, northern Italy in the last yes. ten years to those of the previous twenty years. Can you tell us yes. about what changes you found? Well, as I was saying, uh, the the risk factors that we found did increase because of the lifestyle, but luckily, not all the uh, not I mean the the rate of stillbirth did not increase accordingly. So what we think is happening, as I was saying, is a little bit better management with antenatal uh, counseling or postnatal counseling and also monitoring throughout the pregnancies and when the risk factors can be prevented well can be prevented and for example so preeclampsia is a is, is associated and the management of such a condition is very important what do you believe is causing these changes in italy's stillbirth rates well, <laughs> I think it's a society. I mean, especially the maternal age uh, in increase. Obviously, for many social reasons in Italy, women tend to postpone the pregnancy. That has to do with economic issues, but also with work issues. I mean, uh, lots of women try to postpone the time of pregnancy, but that is might be good for their life balance, but is not always good for the health part of their lives and also well obesity is something that we see happening in all the western countries so i guess uh, the underlying issues are the same everywhere smoking uh, i think in italy we haven't had a very strong program in uh, smoking uh, halting as in as it's, it's happening in other countries we know in europe we smoke much more than in other countries in, especially in developed countries and type 2 diabetes is often associated with um, obesity or lifestyle in general. Going back to the title of your paper, How Many Roads Lead to Stillbirth Rate Reduction? I'm yeah. wondering, based on your findings, what do you think are the best roads to reducing the stillbirth rate? Well, uh, thank you for this question, because I really think that the roads need to be taken all by different actors, but they are all together very important to be combined. So <clears throat> awareness of the mother 
especially for the recurrence, because we know that there is a recurrence uh, higher rate. Uh, so whenever uh, somebody, a woman, a family goes through through this tragedy, she must be uh, taken care of the mother. I mean, she. We need to. They need to have an evaluation. Um, they need to to try to address the issue and try to see if 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 it can be counselled for a next for a following pregnancy. Then the caregivers need to be aware, and they need to be aware of all the risk factors, how they can be managed, and this should lead to um, personalized medicine in pregnancy. So the monitoring or the the labor induction, all of this must be personalized in regards to the condition of the woman, the condition or, or, or the fetus. And, and, and I think that's, that's why we say that it must be something that all actors might work together. So I'm assuming that this paper being published in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine, that, that's a pretty big deal, right? Well, yes. Well, thankfully, we are normally uh, very proud of our work. You know, in, in science in general or research in general, you start a project um, with the idea of um, increasing knowledge and and that should be a little bit of a, a little piece of a puzzle. And every time that a peer reviewing system and a good international journal accept your work as solid, obviously, we normally celebrate a little bit. Not only for us, but also because we think we are adding some information out there that might help families and clinicians. And how long did it take to put this paper together from the day you first came up with the idea? Well, normally a project like this uh, lasts around a year, I'd say. Between, uh, normally the average is one year. Then the publishing might take sometimes long because obviously like, uh, the peer review system helps in, uh, in bettering each paper. So each paper goes through a round of revision in which other scientists tell you how to improve the paper. But normally between you start and until you publish it between one and two years. So that's definitely worthy of a celebration once it's published then. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's why we tend to celebrate. <laughs> but also because when it's accepted, it means that the scientific community and other uh, clinicians or other experts find your information worth it. What has been the reaction to this paper since it was published? Well, that's the the difficult part. So normally, um, you are, apart aside from the paper, you need to go to conferences or to family associations um, conferences to try to tailor the message to the people. Because that's what when we were saying that the different people need to act in, in concert. Well, obviously, the language that we use with clinicians or with scientists is different from the language that we must use with uh, peop uh, women or fathers-to-be. Uh, and obviously, that's the tricky bit. So we need to try to spread the word in different ways. Many of the people who listen to this podcast are families who have experienced pregnancy loss, and they're often interested in knowing 
what outside experts like yourself as a researcher think about pregnancy loss. And you, with the work that you've done and the papers you've done on this topic, I'm wondering if you have gained a personal opinion on pregnancy loss and stillbirth. Is there a lot of work that needs to be done or how would you assess where you're at personally on this topic? Uh, well, thank you for this question. It's a very difficult question. And uh, um, I started working on this subject when I was young, obviously straight after my PhD. And and then through during all these years, I also had kids, but I also experienced uh, pregnancy loss. So I'm, I'm happy to work on this subject for two reasons. First, because I always thought it was scientifically very interesting, but also for me as a person that had that experience, I realized how much there is to do. The, the, the fact that it's also difficult to talk about it, I knew it because I was studying the subject, but when it happened to me, I realized how difficult it is because many people just assume, oh yes, it, happened, it happens to, lo to lots of people, so go on, move on. It's not always that easy to move on and you shouldn't move on. You should recognize what's happened. And because of this, I'm really happy that I, I have the opportunity to keep working on this field because I think there is so much to do and, and there should be much more um, talk about it. We should talk about it and we should try to explain better uh, the feelings and we should try to counseling be after this much better. Your personal experience, thank you for sharing that with me, by the way. Um, That's okay. Your personal experience, is that one of the reasons that led you into doing this work? Did, did that inspire no. You? no, as I was saying before, I started before this. So I'm 42, I have three kids, and I started this when I was 26. So I started much before. I always thought it was a very interesting topic in general pregnancy and birth defects. I mean, it's a miracle to have a baby. And in terms of science and, and medical science, we still don't know a lot of things that we should know to prevent any bad outcome. Pregnancy and having a kid should be just happiness. Sometimes it's not. So I think as a society, we really should push and study more this. I think my final question for you is if you could talk to an OB about this paper, uh, and maybe this OB doesn't have time to sit down and read the whole paper, but you wanted to talk to this OB about what the main takeaways are. If there's one or two or three things you want them to learn from it, what would you tell that OB? Well, I would probably tell them to take care of the women from the start. So really, um, start evaluating the women, all the possible risk factor, even before starting the pregnancy. So planning a pregnancy. And then re try to remember that each woman is a person and is not just a number in the statistics. So obviously we know that some things are more likely to, but the combinations of, the, of different risk factors can be important, but also uh, the lifestyle of the woman. So I know uh, it's difficult, but each woman should be really uh, counseled and managed in different way and also plan 
carefully a very strict monitoring of the pregnancy. So if something is not going very well, um, uh, something we should be, they should be able to spot it soon, very immediately, as soon as possible to then try to do something about it. Because obviously each baby count and each family counts. Well, Valentina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and share all of the insights that you learned from putting this paper together. And thank you for also sharing your personal story with me. I really appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. Well, it was very good to, for me too. And I really thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And I hope this little bit helps. That's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. I'm Chris Duffy. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.